Thank you guys so much. It's beautiful. Last service I said that when I was walking up I, during worship, it was like, I see the light. I see the light. Oh, man, it was just so powerful. And uh, last night especially, I don't know what it was, it's the same worship set, I've just been moved uh, very much uh, in each of the three services. And, um, yeah, we're so, we're so fortunate. Thank you so much, worship team. Art, great job. Um, so a uh, couple things. Um, I got an uh, email yesterday from Pastor John. He said he finally got his computer up and running, so he was able to listen to my first couple sermons. So I was nervous about what was going to follow after that. He said they weren't horrible, so I guess that's good, right? Yeah. He didn't say that. He, he was very gracious, but um, he begged uh, and pleaded. He goes, if it's okay, would you please, please, please tell everybody I said hello. So Pastor John says hello. They're doing really well. A um, couple things also. Um, so many of you are praying for me and for my family um, and I'm so grateful. Let me just kind of fill you in. The last 30 days has been a lot of interesting things in my life, in my family's life. So uh, not only did we say goodbye to Pastor John and Kay, um, you know, then I stepped into some pretty big shoes to fill. So that's been uh, challenging and rewarding. Um, saw my oldest daughter off to London. She's doing well. She was at Hillsong London this morning. And she said it was incredible. I'm so jealous. We're going to be visiting her in November. Looking forward to that. Never been. Um, so she's doing good. And then my youngest daughter, we moved out two weekends ago. Um, and uh, so she doesn't come back. We rented out her room already, moved this individual in, helped move her in yesterday. Just kidding. Um, but yeah, Joni graduated from Biola back in May and got a job in, in Irvine. And her and a couple friends uh, moved into Costa Mesa uh, the last two weekends. So, uh, And then I started school a week and a half ago. So that's taken a lot of my time. I'm mentally fatigued, but I am doing so well. I am doing so well. And many of you are praying, and I just want to say thank you so much. Um, I'm in a great place. I'm a little slow on sermon prep. You know, it takes a while to, to get into that groove. It's about 25 hours a week for me. Um, but it's been so rewarding and so rich, and I'm so grateful. And I thank the Lord every day that um, I get to do that for a living. It's crazy. Um, so I just wanted to give you an update. My family's doing great. I'm doing well. Um, I'm just so thankful. Thank you for being here. This is a great church. We're so fortunate to be together. Let me read for you a uh, story from World War II. The pilot glanced outside his cockpit, and he froze. He blinked hard and looked again, hoping it was just a mirage. But his co-pilot stared at the same horrible vision. My God, this is a nightmare, the co-pilot said. He's going to destroy us, the pilot agreed. The men were looking at a gray German Messerschmitt fighter hovering about three feet off their wingtip. It was five days before Christmas, 1943, and the German fighter had closed in on their crippled American B-17 bomber for the kill. The B-17 pilot, named Charles Brown, which is cute, Charlie Brown. The B-17 pilot, Charles Brown, was a 21-year-old from West Virginia. He was a farm boy, and this was his first combat mission. His bomber had been shot to pieces by swarming fighters, and his plane was alone in the skies above Germany. Half of his crew was wounded, and the tail gunner was dead, his blood frozen in icicles over the machine guns. But when Brown and his 
Brown and his co-pilot, Spencer Pinky Luke, looked at the fighter pilot again, something odd happened. The German didn't pull the trigger. He nodded at Brown instead. Mercy. Years later, Brown would track down his would-be executioner for a reunion that reduced both men to tears. The German pilot spared the life of the American and both men would reunite and become friends 50 years later. Franz Stigler and Charles Brown started the war as enemies, but during a tense wartime encounter, both men discovered a higher call. That's a sign of mercy. And that's what Psalm 6 is about. We're in Psalm 6 this morning. Let me pray. God, what a privilege to sing your praises. What a privilege to wrestle with your word and to hear from you. And so, Lord God, I pray that we would open our hearts and our minds and our ears so that we indeed may hear from you, the creator of the universe and the creator of mankind. We are yours, Lord, your sons and daughters, and we are anxious to hear from you. Amen. As you recall, we're in Psalm 6 today. We're in Psalm 19 next weekend. Um, Pastor Dave's going to be preaching on Psalm 19 next weekend, and I, for one, am really, really, really looking forward to next weekend and hearing from Pastor Dave. The preaching schedule, um, if you haven't seen it already, it's actually in your program. We're trying to give you a couple weeks out to let you know which uh, psalms we're going to be going over. So if you want to read, they're, they're listed here in your program or your bulletin, and it's also on the website, I believe. So just so you can be ahead, uh, read ahead if you'd like to. Let's read Psalm 6. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 6, 10 verses. Light and fluffy this is not. This is a little bit of a heavy psalm. I hope that's okay. Psalm 6, verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. And my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death, in Sheol, who will give you thanks. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. Verse 10, all my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. Psalm 6. The big idea for this psalm, the merciful Lord blesses the merciful and they shall receive mercy. That's from Matthew 5, 7 as well. One of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. What's it mean to be merciful? I think this will be on the screen. An attitude of compassion and care, grounded in the nature of God Himself, made manifest in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and expected of believers. I pray 
a lot of things, and one of them that we would be a merciful people of God. Merciful to one another and merciful to others. Exodus 34, 6, and the first part of 7 says this, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, this is passed by in front of Moses, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Sometimes I think the Old Testament God doesn't get enough credit. We think He's the mean God. I like the New Testament God. <laughs> right? This is, this is our God. It's the same God. He's loving. He is abounding in loving kindness and truth. And He forgives transgressions and sin. There are several Hebrew and Greek words that are needed in order to comprehend the concept of mercy. Let me give you some of them. Kindness. Are we kind? Loving kindness. Goodness. Grace. Favor. Pity. Compassion. Steadfast love. But hear this, church. Prominent in the concept of mercy is the compassionate disposition to forgive an offender or an adversary and to spare, yea, to help that person in their sorry disposition. Let me read that again. This is what it means for us to be merciful. When God is merciful to us, His expectation is for us to be merciful to others. That's the call to us as a church. Let me read it again. Prominent in the concept of mercy is the compassionate disposition to forgive an offender, an adversary, and to spare or even help them in their sorry plight. That's crazy. That's a high calling. We can't do that on our own. We need that. We can only do that with the help of our Lord. That's crazy stuff. The movie Les Mis, if I get this right... It was cool. We, you know, I think I've, as some of you know in my little bio that we love to go to New York, and we were fortunate last July to go to New York and see Les, Les Miserables uh, on Broadway, and it was incredible. But I think if I got the character right, is it Jean Valjean steals some of that silver? Is that right? From, from the church, and he gets caught, and they bring him back, and the priest says, oh, no, I gave that to him, and he actually, I think, gives him more stuff. Wow, that's mercy. That's mercy. I've heard it this way. This might be helpful. Grace, sometimes we, we, we get confused between grace and mercy. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. We did not deserve Christ, and God gave us Christ. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We deserve death. We deserve punishment for our sin. And God shows us mercy, and He doesn't give us what we do deserve. Why does David in Psalm 6 cry out to God for mercy? Why does David cry out to God for mercy? Three reasons. One, because he's in need of mercy. He needs mercy, so he cries out to God for mercy. Good start. The second reason is he knows the Lord is merciful. He can cry out to God for mercy because he knows the Lord is merciful. And the third reason, because he has reasons to expect that God will show him mercy. It's one thing to know God's merciful, but if we don't expect to be shown mercy, we would not cry out to him. David expects God to show him mercy, and we're to have the same disposition. 
Let me summarize for you Psalm 6. The summary of Psalm 6 is this. David, the servant of the Lord, is being reproved by the Lord. And he's petitioning God for deliverance. David's reproof is coming in the form of his enemies. Finding assurance that his prayer has been heard, he warned his persecutors to depart, for they are about to be put to shame. This is one of the penitential psalms found in the book of Psalms. It's not known what event or sin is associated with this psalm. Not sure it matters. It is also referred to as a complaint psalm. And then I'm making this up. Or it's also referred to in the John Werhaus commentary as a deep waters psalm. That's what PJ would say, right? David's in deep waters. Other penitential psalms, for those of you who are interested, are Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, 102, 130, and 143. Because of what Israel, as a covenant nation, God's people, because of what they had learned about the steadfast love and faithfulness of their God, devout Jews, followers of the Lord, instinctively, instinctively lifted their voices in petition for divine mercy and forgiveness in times of need. Instinctively, that's what they did. It is the remembrance of God's mercy that gives the repentant person the hope and assurance of divine favor and of reconciliation with our offended Lord. We offend our Lord when we sin. But we're promised and we're given hope that God will show us divine favor out of His mercy. That's crazy. Let's outline Psalm 6, all right? Four, outline, or four points. Point one, two, three, four, A, B, C, D, whatever you want to do. Point number one, Psalms, uh, verses 1 through 3, contrition. Verses 1 through 3 are about contrition, and we'll talk about that in a second. Deep sorrow and humble repentance for sin. A deep sorrow and humble repentance. Because why? Sin is displeasing to God, of course. That's point one. Point two, petition. That's verses 4 and 5. To pray, to give a supplication and to implore our Lord in times of need. Verses 6 and 7, condition. The condition that David's in, the mode or state of being with regard to his circumstances and influences. And then what I love is where David transitions in verses 8 through 10. And he passes from one bad place into a much better place. Okay? So we've got contrition, petition, condition, and transition. Worth noting is this. In verses 1 through 3, you can, you can kind of do this on your own later if you want. In verses 1 through 3, the way I see it is David's kind of focusing on himself a little bit. In verses 4 to 5, he starts to focus on God a little bit. In verses 6 to 7, he goes back to focusing on himself a little bit. And then in 8, to 10, 8 through 10, he goes back to focusing on God a little bit. It's kind of what it's like with us, right? When we're struggling with stuff, we just, we're in our world, when then we get into God's world. Then we get back into our world, then we get into God's world. And that's what it is to wrestle with the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Why, why do we study? I asked this of both uh, uh, the other two services. Why do we study God's Word? Huh? Learn. Learn what? Learn how to live. Oh, that's good. That's good. Huh? To love God? What else? 
to know his, his character. Well, you, you guys get an A. That, that, yeah. Don't tell the other two services, but you guys nailed it. Double knowledge. Wrestle with, let me explain this. Double knowledge. The Word of God is meant to penetrate the heart. It reveals to us two things. Knowledge of both God and self. The Word of God is meant to reveal both who God is and who we are. So that when we see who we are, we see the need for God and who He is and how He operates, and we see how those two things fit together. Double knowledge. Turn with me to Hebrews 4, 12, 13. Here's a perfect verse. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. This is why we study God's Word. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. New Testament towards the end. After First and Second Timothy and Titus. Hebrews 4. Let me tell you how potent and important God's Word is. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as... It, it divides the little things as much as the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, able to judge our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Wow. Double knowledge. God wants us to be aware of who we are and who He is, and that's what His Word is for. So the, the more we see ourselves, the more clearly we recognize our need for Him and what He desires of us. Can I get an amen? Amen. General observations of Psalm 6. We're going to set the mood here. Going back to Psalm 6. Look at some of these words. I was editing yesterday afternoon, and I'm telling you, I broke down into tears just reading some of the pain that David was in. It's just amazing to me. Verse 2, he says, I am pining away. My bones are dismayed. My soul is dismayed. Return, O Lord. Rescue my soul. Save me. In verse 6, I am weary. Every night I'm crying myself to sleep. My eye has wasted away in verse 7. In verse 4, it just was heavy for me, and I don't know why yesterday, but it just overcame me. And I'm, just, I'm reading over and over again what it must have been like for David to feel that God has abandoned him, where he's saying, return. Return. To feel so alone in that moment where he would say, return, O Lord, rescue. I've never, that I recall, been in need of being have been in a place of being needing to be rescued. I don't know what that feels like where I'm saying, rescue me. This is where David's at. And then he says, save me. I know that many of us, maybe today, maybe recently, and maybe in the very near future, I don't know, will have these very same emotions. And here's... Here's my promise to you. To the degree that I can, I'll be there for you. If you're tired where it's hard for you to say, rescue me and save me and return to me, O Lord, I want to help. If, whatever that looks like, I will do the best I can to be in the trenches with you in that. 
There are three things that David is complaining of. Three things. Sickness of body. He's arguably near death. The second thing is trouble of mind and soul because of his sin. And the third thing, the insults of his enemies because of both of the first two things. It's a sad and difficult time for a man or a woman to have both their body and their soul dismayed at the same time. And that's where David's at in Psalm 6. That's a tough place to be. Those are indeed deep waters. Where else are we to go with our complaints but to our Heavenly Father? Where do you go in your times of trouble? David's on the border of the grave, yet he's assured of being heard. He's assured of being directed. He's assured of being sustained by the grace and the mercy of the Almighty. 2 Samuel 24, 14, David says to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3 is point number 1 is contrition. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? As we mentioned already, contrition is deep sorrow and humble repentance for our sin because it displeases our God. I think on some level, church, not just us, but the church in general, I think we've lost the art of contrition in the church. Whatever it is that we wrestle with or however we wrestle with sin, I don't think we wrestle with it contritely, and that's what we're encouraged to do in Scripture. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. The psalmist says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Let me stop there. There's a lot of things we can do in a church that are sacrificial. We can give a lot of our time. We can give a lot of our resources. And and those aren't bad things. But it says in verse 16 that the psalmist says, You do not delight in our sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. But what does he say in 17? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. We may do a lot of things for the Lord, but may our hearts be broken and contrite before Him first and foremost. We can be honest with God, and arguably we should be able to be honest with one another in our desire for godliness and holiness because we're merciful to one another as God is merciful to us. Isaiah has a more powerful rendition of what we just read. Turn to Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, verses 15 and 16. This is powerful. Like David, we have our moments where we wonder where God is. Where the heck did God go? Isaiah 57, just to the right of Psalms. Verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, 
I'm going to tell you where I dwell, he says. I dwell in a high and holy place. And also with who? The contrite and lowly of spirit. You want to find God? He's in his high and holy place, and he's with the contrite and lowly. We need to learn the art of contrition in our walk with the Lord. And he goes on, continuing, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. We need to practice contrition. It's okay to be honest with God about our sin. Back in verse 1 of Psalm 6, where it says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Let me tell you how it's written in the Hebrew. This is exactly how it's written in the Hebrew. Do rebuke, not in your anger. You get that? Do rebuke, David says. But just don't do it in your anger, Lord, please. Do chasten but not in your wrath. That's contrition. How often have we prayed like David's prayed in Psalm 6? Lord, I have sinned. Oh Lord, do rebuke me. Just do so, not in your anger. Oh Lord, do chasten me, but please don't do it in your wrath. That's contrition. That's how it's written. Rebuke is the practice of pointing out another person's mistake, fault, or sin for the purpose of correcting their behavior. We like to rebuke more than we like to be rebuked. We're so ready to rebuke others and not so ready to receive rebuke from the Lord or others. Chasten means to discipline, the practice of punishing another for their benefit and maturity. The practice of punishing another for their benefit and mercy. I have two girls, Joni, uh, my youngest. She was here first service this morning. All you had to do was rebuke Joni. Just say, Joni, we're really disappointed. And we did not even finish the sentence. And she, no, I'm so sorry. And she would go to her room and she, how oh, can I ever make it up to you? And she was so sincere. All we had to do was barely rebuke her and the kid would just break down. Chelsea, we would rebuke and she'd be like, that's all you got? I mean, nothing. I mean, it did not penetrate at all. We had to discipline Chelsea. They're great kids, but they just responded differently. Let me read a story. It's a little light-hearted story. It'll be fun. And then I'm going to ask you a more of a heavier question behind it. So this guy says, So my son had been seen taking things from other kids at school. He just turned six. Apparently he stole a kid's toothbrush. Weird. And it was found in his backpack. So the school informed me about it. I sat down with my son and told him I was very sad. I was very sad that my own son would now have to go to jail. And very sad that I, his dad, and the rest of his family was going to miss him very much. So I packed him up in the car to the police station, took him into the police station, asked to speak to an officer. The officer asked why we're there. I told him my son had taken a toothbrush. This is horrible. Belonged to another child. The police officer looked grim and asked my son sternly, why did you do that? My son shrank back and whimpered, because I wanted it. The police officer says sternly, those are nice shoes you have. 
Would it be right if I took them? Because I really want them. No, came his shaky reply. The police officer said, well, what else did you take? I took $20 out of my mom's purse. (laughs) This was especially hilarious because my wife and I had no idea about that. The officer gave a little lecture, told him he would be forgiven this time and never do it again. Is that rebuke? Is that discipline? Don't know. But let me ask you this question. Why? Why does the Lord, or why do we as parents, for those of us who have children, rebuke and chasten them? Why does the Lord rebuke and chasten them? Why do we as parents rebuke and chasten Love. We rebuke and chasten out of love. For them to learn. To learn what? Discipline. What else? Huh? Right and wrong. I think the Lord chastens and rebukes us because He created us a certain way to be in fellowship with Him and for that fellowship to be harmonious and sinless and faultless and without blame and perfect. And so the Lord loves us so much and He's returning us and restoring us and redeeming us at all times until we enter back into a perfect state with Him. The Lord's just trying to make it what it should have been from the very beginning. When we have children, all we want is for them to be what they should be. And that's all God wants. And so out of His love, He chastens and rebukes us. That's kind of heavy, isn't it? Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, we've heard this. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. Sometimes we loathe His reproof. Whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. A German theologian from the 1500s named Nicholas Selnecker says this, When thou art frightened on account of thy sins and know not how to get rid of them, flee to God and confess thy sins to Him. Uncover them to Him in order that He may cover them. It's kind of counterintuitive. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? Go talk to God about it? We're out of here. And it's called cover and hide. They cover themselves and then they hid. When we sin, our tendency is to cover and hide. That's not going to help. Sometimes we run from the very person we should run to. Oftentimes we run from the very person and thing that we should run to, repentance, contrition, and to our Lord. Verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 6. Return, O Lord, return. Rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. There's no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? The book of Psalms teaches that a variety, that variety and honesty in prayer are permissible. James 5.3 says this, Is any among you suffering? What must he do? It's on the screen. Pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. James 5.13 Sometimes we simply don't pray. It's not easy for me to pray. I'm telling you. It's not my propensity to pray. I love reading God's Word. I love worshiping. It's hard for me to pray but I'm getting better at it. I'm recognizing more and more the need for prayer. We need to pray. In his earnest prayer for deliverance, David gave two reasons why God should answer. 
Two reasons. One is that the Lord should rescue him because of his unfailing love. That's what it says in verse 4. Save me because of your loving kindness, Lord. He calls God out in a cool kind of way. So one is that the Lord should rescue David, uh, rescue him because of his uh, unfailing love. God has shown himself again and again and again to be abundant in loyal love. The Hebrew word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. So David pleaded for deliverance on the basis of God's character. He pleaded for forgiveness and mercy on the basis of God's character. That's kind of cool. People often cry out to God in times of trouble, don't they? A lot of people cry out to God in times of trouble. In verse 4, a lot of people can say, Oh Lord, rescue me! But not everybody can cry out the second part of verse 4. Save me because of your loving kindness. Because they don't know that about him. Any man can cry out the first part of verse 4, but only one who has tasted that the Lord is gracious can use the last part of verse 4. Amen? The second reason that the Lord should turn to David is because of the absence of praises in the grave. There's no way to praise the Lord in the grave. If David died because of his illness, he could not praise God for delivering him from it. So David reasoned that if God desired someone to stand in the sanctuary and proclaim that God delivered him, then God would have to do so. Is that coercive? Is David a good salesman? No. That's, that's David's heart. He has a contrite heart. He's saying, God, I want to praise you. I want people to hear the praises of you being a deliverer. And in order for you... For me, to do that, you've got to do what you've got to do. I love that. I love that. Charles Spurgeon says this. Charles Spurgeon is a preacher from the 1800s. He's, he's nicknamed the Prince of Preachers. He says this. This is the right way to plead with God. Urge not your goodness or your greatness, but plead your sin and your bitterness. When we seek pardon, we are not asking God to do that which will stain his banner. He delighteth in mercy. It is his peculiar darling attribute. Isn't that awesome? When we ask God to be merciful, we're not asking him to do something against who he is. That's exactly who he is. Verses 6 and 7, contrition. I'm sorry, condition. The condition. I'm, I'm weary. I'm crying all night. My eye is wasted away with grief. It's become old because of my adversaries. In these verses, David it's just calling attention to the severity of his suffering. He's in a rough place. One commentary says this, It has often been the lot of the best of men to be men of sorrows. Our Lord Jesus himself was one of them. David, who not only faced Goliath and many other threatening enemies, melts into tears at the remembrance of sin and the perception of the Lord's wrath because of it but it in no way diminished his character to do so. Sorrow for sin ought to be great sorrow. Sorrow for sin ought to be great sorrow. And so David's sorrow was. And lastly, verses 8 through 10, transition. Depart from me, you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed, and they will turn back. He transitions here, big time. In verses 1 through 3, David spends a lot of time uh, talking about what he knows to be true about himself. And in verses 8 through 10, he spends his time talking about what he knows to be true about his Lord. Look in verses 1 through 3. I think there's three or four occasions where he says, Oh, Lord, 
in verse 2, Oh Lord. And again in verse 2, Oh Lord. And in verse 3, Oh Lord. He's crying out. But look how he transitions in verse 8 and verse 9. For the Lord. In verse 9, the Lord. And then again in verse 9, the Lord. He transitions from O Lord to the Lord, where he starts to proclaim the things that he knows to be true about his merciful God. Let me close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. This is, this is awesome, awesome stuff. Charles Spurgeon says this, God often delays in answering prayers. We have several instances of this in Scripture. Jacob did not get the blessing from the angel until near the dawn of day. He had to wrestle all night for it. The poor woman of, a woman of Syrophoenicia was answered not a word for a long while. Paul besought the Lord thrice that the thorn in his flesh might be taken from him, and he received no assurance that it would be taken. But instead, thereof, he got a promise that God's grace would be sufficient for him. If thou hast been knocking at the gate of mercy and has received no answer, shall I tell thee why the mighty maker has not opened the door to you? Yes, Charles, please tell me why. Our Father has reasons peculiar to Himself for thus keeping us waiting. Sometimes it is to show His power and His sovereignty that men may know that Jehovah has the right to give or withhold. More frequently, the delay is for our profit. Thou art perhaps kept waiting in order that thy desires may be more fervent. God knows that delay will quicken and increase our desire, and that if He keeps thee waiting, thou will see thy necessity more clearly and will seek more earnestly, and that thou will prize the mercy all the more for its long awaiting. There may be also something wrong in thee which needs to be removed before the joy of the Lord is given. Perhaps thy views of the gospel plan are confused, or thou may be placing some little reliance upon thyself instead of trusting simply and entirely on our Lord. Our God makes thee tarry a while that he may the more fully display the riches of his grace to thee at last. Thy prayers are all filed in heaven. Filed, not filled, filed. And if not immediately answered, they are certainly not forgotten. But in a little while shall be fulfilled to thy delight and satisfaction. Let not despair make thee silent, but continue in earnest supplication. Wow. Spurgeon is the man. That's heavy stuff. Psalm 6. I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, that will conclude our service. And as you know, we have a prayer team to my left, to your right. If you need prayer, please, please come and pray with our prayer team. Let us pray. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And everybody said, Amen. Lord bless you. Thanks for coming, everybody. Good to see you.